chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. And just for context, especially after uh, not having said this now for two weeks, let me read verses 20 and 21, which Paul is directly answering then uh, in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. But the focus of the sermon is chapter 6. Hear God's word. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you, O God, for the completeness of its presentation. Uh, There really is no stone left unturned, not at least which is necessary for our edification and our growth in grace. We ask you, O Lord, as Paul uh, begins to entertain this common response to the gospel of grace, that you might aid us through the preaching to have a better and a more sure knowledge of what that grace entails. Certainly not licensed to sin. May that conviction be thoroughly formed in each one of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we arrive here at a new stage uh, in the argument, and that isn't always evident uh, by chapter headings, but it certainly is here. Chapter 6 does represent uh, a transition in the argument. Uh, Precisely what that transition entails is actually quite debated, and in just a a moment I want to explore that. Uh, But but just realize that chapter 6 is devoted to answering this question, and that is Paul having stated Uh, Not just the abundant, but the superabundant grace, which is evident to sinners in the gospel of his son. The question which it arouses is, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What shall we say? Shall we say this? Now, it isn't clear whether people were actually saying this or if he's just anticipating an objection. But either way, we know that people do say this and it's eminently useful that the apostle would answer that question here. But before we get a hold uh, of his answer to that question, which we will only begin to explore this week uh, in verse 2, just realize that he's answering that question for the whole of chapter 6. Before we do that, I want to try to answer the place of Romans 6 in the course of the book of Romans itself. The traditional breakdown of Romans, you've probably heard it, looks something like this. Uh, Ignoring chapters 12 to the end, everyone agrees that uh, contains the practical exhortations. But typically, it's justification chapters 1 through 5, sanctification chapters 6 through 8, and the place of the Jews, chapters 9 through 11. And so, we would find ourselves here, according to that breakdown... At the beginning of Paul's discussion on sanctification, chapter 6, verse 1, having left justification behind. The question is whether such a breakdown, uh, in fact, uh, reflects what we find in the text. Uh, Let me remind you of the course of the argument and where we find ourselves now. And I hope you will agree with me in saying 
uh, such a breakdown is unjustified. And it really does not reflect where we find ourselves. We are, in other words, not under the heading of sanctification. We're really still under the heading of justification. And so chapters one through four, this is what we've seen and what I've presented, deal with justification, both negative and positive. The bad news, the good news, the wrath of God revealed uh, from heaven against all unrighteousness and sin. But then the righteousness of God revealed, chapter 3, verse 21 in the gospel, taking us to the end of chapter 4. And then beginning in chapter 5, and this is the second heading, chapters 5 through 8, we, uh, we have considered and are considering what is true of the man who has been justified. And so we're still really considering justification just under a secondary heading. Justification, chapters 1 through 4, chapters 5 through 8. What is true of the man who has been justified? He opens chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And then he builds that out for the whole of the chapter. My assertion is he does not finish that until he gets to the end of chapter 8. The, 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 the subject where the heading that we are under now is the second major heading of Romans is, well, it could be stated variously, but I've stated it like this, our certainty in the gospel. And it is a certainty which arises from having properly grasped and appreciated the doctrine of justification. Now, I think that's easy enough to grasp if you look to chapter 8. And you realize Paul is still talking about justification and he's talking about this mighty assurance that the believer enjoys who's been justified. Romans chapters 5 and 8 mirror one another quite closely. In fact, uh, as I was reading this week, uh, one of the commentators pointed out that if you just stopped at the end of uh, chapter 5 and you opened at the beginning of chapter 8, it would be seamless. Well, that, at least that is a clue that uh, this section is to be taken as one, what is true of the man who has been justified. But what about chapters six and eight, uh, six and seven? Excuse me. What do we make of those? Well, I wouldn't view those as a separate section or a new heading, but rather a parenthesis uh, within this larger heading. It is a parenthesis within chapters five through eight. Paul, having set forth uh, again. The assurance that believers enjoy having been justified. He raises the question in chapter 6 concerning the antinomian problem. If the gospel brings with it such certainty, does it not therefore encourage men to sin? Shall we not sin that grace may abound? You see, it's part of the same argument. It isn't, it isn't a new heading. He is answering an objection to what he's just been teaching. And then in chapter 7, he takes up a different problem, and that is the law in its relation to the Christian. And having answered those two objections, he takes up his theme again and takes it all the way to its conclusion, that mighty conclusion that we find at the end of chapter 8, who shall separate me from the love of God? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? But our focus here is upon chapter 6. And we have to face the problem that he presents there. It is a problem which is unavoidable. It is at least unavoidable for uh, anyone who believes and any preacher who preaches the free grace of God that is found in Christ Jesus, his son. 
It is impossible to go along with Paul these five chapters, especially, again, concerning what he says in chapter 5, and not at least have the thought. And certainly the opponents were not only having the thought, but saying, Paul, what you're really teaching is that we ought to sin, that grace might abound. And so this is a problem. It is, it is a charge, and it is also a sinful thought that the gospel always brings with it. Either, uh, again, I'm saying either the opponents of the gospel are saying, this is what you're teaching, or uh, the careless, sinful hearer is saying, ah, I found a justification for my sin. This is always how the gospel has been misrepresented. John Murray says from the apostolic times, and he especially has this chapter in mind, from the apostolic times, the doctrine of the free grace of God, especially as exemplified in a full and free justification, has been loaded with the charge that it promotes licentiousness. Licentiousness. Licentiousness, antinomianism, it all amounts to the same thing. It's just what he says here. Let us sin that grace may abound. That the effect of the gospel is to promote and encourage us to sin more, not less. Well, let's look at this problem. As I say, it's one that has to be faced, the antinomian problem. And it could be stated in many ways. Recently, uh, not a general assembly, but uh, actually at Presbytery, which wasn't too long ago, uh, one of my pastor friends said to me, speaking of the Reformed Church, but we could say just of the church in general, we get justification right, but holiness wrong. Which is, uh, well, that's a humbling thing just to say, let alone to think might be true of us ministers and of the church. And it is a very provocative way of putting it. But I think that is exactly what Paul is saying here to the man who says this. Let us sin that grace may abound. He's saying, you get justification right, but holiness wrong. And even then, he's saying you haven't even gotten justification right. Nor was this minister suggesting that. If, if you had gotten justification right... If you had actually understood what Paul was saying in chapters 1 through 5, you would realize that such an argument was unfounded. In fact, such a thought was or is impossible. This is the kind of thought, and I think this is what the minister meant, and certainly it's what I mean when I say it. This is what happens when you have a merely theoretical view of justification. It's just a doctrine that you believe in an intellectual sense, rather than seeing in the doctrine of justification as Paul presented it in the gospel and as you have found it in your own life, the very power of God on display. And so the difference between the theoretical view and the actual view is a difference of power. One man believes a teaching. He might even set it forth with clarity. Uh, And it turns out in the end he's misunderstood it. But the other man has been affected by it in his person and in his soul. And it has transformed the whole of his life. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for in it is the power of God to save. That's not an exact quote. For it is the power of God to salvation. That's the exact quote. And so understand the difference. There is the type of man who has the doctrine in his head but knows nothing of his power of its power and that is precisely the type of man who is apt to misapply the doctrine who is apt to see this as a license to further sin and really in his heart that's all he wanted but there is another type of man 
who would entertain no such suggestion? The man who's like Paul. Let me say about antinomianism. Uh, I'm not painting the portrait of a caricature. What I am describing, this theoretical knowledge, and what this pastor was saying as well, we get justification right but holiness wrong. This is one of the, the most common things you will ever confront in the church. You'll find it in the pulpits, you'll find it in the pews, and you will constantly battle it in your own heart. Antinomianism. Another way to put the problem is like this. And I think I've already been saying this, but let me say it again. And that is that as soon as you begin to preach the gospel of free grace, the justification of sinners, listen to how I put that, the justification of the ungodly, not of the righteous, but to suggest that God regards sinful people as righteous in his sight, as soon as you begin to preach that, you begin to sound like an antinomian in the ears of many. In fact, and I'm not trying to be too provocative when I say this, but I, I would even suggest that the, the, the gospel, rightly understood, has a certain antinomian bent to it, at least on its face. It tends in this direction. In other words, it doesn't tend at all towards legalism, which is found in the other direction. The gospel demolishes the heart of the legalist. It provokes him. It enrages him. But if the gospel were to tend in one direction, the one error it is most prone to produce is that of antinomianism. Sinclair Ferguson in this book, The Whole Christ, which I have a an inclination that I might be using quite a bit uh, in the preaching of these sermons. He points out that Jesus in his preaching was never once accused of being a legalist, but he was often accused of being an antinomian. Of course, we know how he answered that. He wasn't an antinomian. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The truth is he had a higher view of the law than any of the legalists did. The same is true of Paul. His opponents were saying of him, and uh, we could also say the careless, sinful hearer was, was imagining him to say, let us sin that grace may be, uh, that grace may abound. We have to understand that the effect of the preaching of the gospel mystifies the legalists. The legalists were saying something like this, and they're still saying it today. What you are preaching, Paul, is dangerous. You are saying that sinners might be justified freely without any works of all, at all. And you are therefore actually encouraging them to sin. You're emboldening them. And what is more, what he says in chapter 5 verses 20 and 21 only magnifies the problem. For if grace abounds all the more, even as sin is abounding, the more sin there is, the more grace appears. Is not... Paul actually suggesting that what we ought to do is sin more, that we might get more grace. Isn't that what he just said? Well, that's what they heard him to say. That isn't what he said, but that's what they heard him to say. What he, what he did say is that for however much great, uh, sin there is, and there's a lot of sin, there's always more grace. Now, did you hear me to say you ought to sin more? That's not what I said. But that's what they were saying to Paul. And that's what the preaching of the gospel will always arouse in the heart of the legalist or the antinomian. Either side. 
This was something that Martin Lloyd-Jones, I know I've been quoting him ad nauseum, but this, if I had waited for one opportunity to quote him, it would have been this moment, because he is most famous in his preaching of Romans for saying this. And he says it in several different places in different ways. He says, there is a sense in which the doctrine of justification by faith only is a very dangerous doctrine. Dangerous, I mean, in the sense that it can be misunderstood. It exposes a man to this particular charge. And that is of antinomianism. I say, therefore, that if our preaching does not expose us to that charge and to that misunderstanding, it's because we're not really preaching the gospel. There's no better test as to whether a man is really preaching the New Testament gospel of salvation than this. And that is whether men are accusing him of antinomianism. In other words, whether he is forced to say along with Paul, now don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying let us sin that grace may abound. And if he hasn't put the gospel of free grace so strongly that he has to say that, he isn't putting it strongly enough. In another place, this is the second of three quotes I want to read from Lloyd-Jones. He puts it even stronger. If you do not sound as if you were preaching antinomianism, you are not preaching the gospel. The gospel sounds dangerous to the merely moral man. And then finally, uh, let, me, let me find this one in the book. He says, that is my comment. So he's just said all of this and he concludes. And it's a very important comment for preachers. I would say to all preachers, if your preaching of salvation has not been misunderstood in that way, then you would better examine your sermons again. And so he sets it forth as a test. And let us realize, in light of the teaching of the end of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, that there will always be the tendency for men to say this. That's the point. It is not something that you can escape or avoid. In fact, it's something you really ought to anticipate. But do you notice how Paul answers the objection? And he devotes an entire chapter to answering the objection. Look at what he says at the beginning of verse 2. And it will be translated variously in your translations. I think some translate it as strongly as God forbid. That doesn't really reflect the Greek. But certainly not. Which is a way of saying in Greek, I think the best way to translate it is, may it never be. May it never be. It is a way, it is the strongest possible way to refute an assertion. Why did you say that? You shouldn't have said that. That's what he's saying. He, he could not have stated a more powerful refutation you remember along the same lines, he said in chapter 3, verse 31, do we then make void the law through faith? It's the same accusation. He says the same thing. Certainly not. May it never be. Why are you saying this? Did you listen to what I was saying? And so certainly not. That's something you ought to underline. In other words, we ought to see the impossibility of drawing this deduction in light of what he's uh, of what he's been teaching. And not just the impossibility, but the absurdity. The, the thing is monstrous, even blasphemous. And really the, uh, the translation, though it isn't entirely accurate, God forbid, does capture that sense. It is blasphemous to suggest that what God is really doing in handing over his son for our sins is saying, go ahead, sin more. And nothing, no suggestion perverts the doctrine of justification more thoroughly 
Paul is saying you ought not even to think it. As soon as that thought occurs to your sinful heart, quench it. Put it out. Thomas Brooks calls this the devil's logic. This is how sinners reason. And you see, Paul feels so strongly about this that he refutes it twice. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Chapter 6, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. Twice. And there you have the division of the chapter. Two full refutations of this idea. Now just think about the structure of the argument. Here's where we really can appreciate it. You have to understand how much restraint it took on the Apostle Paul's part. He wanted to tell us so much about the doctrine of assurance. He couldn't wait to get to chapter 8, but he wasn't quite ready. Even though he wanted to tell us all about assurance, he wanted to be sure that we wouldn't abuse the doctrine. But having set aside the objections and the perversions, well, then he is able to get to his glorious conclusion in chapter 8. Let me say another thing about antinomianism, and this is something I've often said. It's just my observation, but I doubt any of you would object. And that is that antinomianism is the cardinal sin of evangelicalism. Now, the quote I gave earlier about uh, we get justification right, but holiness wrong. I love that. I think think I'm going to start saying that. But he was speaking of the Reformed Church. But I'm looking more broadly when I say here is the cardinal sin. You look about you. Many of you are here, in fact, in a Reformed Presbyterian church because you said, You know, they never preach the law. They never emphasize holiness. I would say this much for that tendency. In one sense, at least they're going in the right direction. In the sense that they're not going against the strain of the gospel into the legalist strain. But like so many, they've gone too far. So far, it would seem that they believe that sin is the way to get more grace. Or at least careless living is the way to not be a legalist. But in reality, the way you counter legalism is not by antinomianism. And equally, this is Paul, now we're looking at it from Paul's perspective, the way you counter antinomianism is not with legalism. How prone we are, beloved, to errors and to extremes. This is not the path Paul takes. Let me say this as well. I hope to have more opportunity to speak of this fact in later sermons. Antinomianism and legalism in one sense are opposite extremes of the spectrum. But in another sense, you could say they really belong together at one side of the spectrum as twin errors of the same problem. They are both distortions of the law of God, the character of God, and the grace of God. The answer to legalism is not antinomianism. It is rather, and let me underline this as well, the other side of the spectrum which Paul uh, answers both errors with is the grace of God. The grace of God answers the antinomian. The grace of God answers the legalist. And if only you understood the grace of God, which appears in your justification, but also appears in everything that you get from Christ. You wouldn't be a legalist and you wouldn't be an antinomian. The grace of God as it is found in the gospel of his son. Grace alone conquers the legalist in every heart, but it equally conquers the antinomian. And the way it does so is through the teaching 
of this chapter. There you will find, and this is another uh, place I, I think I'll find myself, uh, myself often. Uh, it's one of my favorite books, Principles of Conduct, John Murray. I keep it on my desk. There aren't many books I keep on my desk, but this is one of them. It never goes on the bookshelf. The most important chapter is at the end, the dynamic. He outlines the Christian ethic, the principles of Christian conduct. But by the time he gets to the end, he says, where do we find the power by which that ethic or by which we are enabled to live out that ethic? The power is found in the grace of God. It is not found in the law of God. It is found in the grace of God. Again, much, uh, much to be said there. Uh, this uh, from from Murray in sermons to come as we expound this thought. This was also uh, the experience of David Brainerd, uh, the famous uh, evangelist to the Indians in the midst of the first great awakening. Uh, I had read his diary, but never his journals. And uh, Glenn Gorton's teaching in Sunday school spurred me on to finish the book. And the journals come in the second part. And he makes observations about the awakening that occurred among the Indians. And he makes uh, his second observation has to do with the type of preaching that led to the moral renovation in the lives of the Indians. Now, the first point had to do with what led to their salvation. The second point had to do with what was it that led to their sanctification? Was it the large place he assigned to the law? That's not his experience. This is what he said. And I want to read several portions of this. He says, secondly, it is worthy of remark that numbers of these people are brought to a strict compliance with the rules of morality and sobriety and to a conscientious performance of the external duties of Christianity by the internal power and influence of divine truths, the peculiar doctrines of grace upon their minds. Without their having these moral, moral duties frequently repeated and inculcated upon them. And the contrary vices particularly exposed and spoken against. In other words, he didn't rail against their sin. He didn't uh, preach the law every sermon. But he just kept preaching the grace of God as it was found in the gospel. And he found not only that they were saved, but that their lives were reformed after a moral fashion. They were putting away those vices and beginning to practice uh, the good deeds. Let me read a little more. The Reformation was general and all springing from the internal influence of divine truth upon their heart and not from any external restraints. And finally, the happy effects of these peculiar doctrines of grace, which I have so much insisted upon with this people, plainly discover even to demonstration that instead of their opening a door to licentiousness, as many vaguely imagine and slanderously insinuate, they have a direct contrary tendency so that a close application, a sense and feeling of them will have the most powerful influence toward the renovation and effectual reformation, both of heart and life. Happy experience, as well as the word of God and the example of Christ and his apostles has taught me that the method of preaching, which is best suited to awaken mankind in mankind, the sense and lively apprehension of their depravity and misery in a fallen state to excite them earnestly to seek after a change of heart and to fly for refuge to free and sovereign grace in Christ is likely to be most successful toward the reformation of their external conduct. I have found that close addresses and solemn applications of divine truth to the conscience tend directly to strike death to the root of all vice. 
I can hardly think of a stronger confirmation of what Paul was saying himself. Set forth the grace of God as it is found in the gospel. And what you will find is not that people are encouraged to sin. People might say that. And some might believe it. But what you will find is that their lives will be transformed in a way and with a power that could never be found in God's law. And so Paul doesn't preach the law to them to counter this tendency, nor does he. Again, I think I'll have more to say about this in future sermons. Nor does he preach the gospel in a legal frame. But I'll just leave you with that thought. Paul's answer, and in this we find the doctrine of the whole chapter, is union with Christ in his grace and power. Union with Christ in his death and resurrection. The fundamental assertion, which in fact has been found already in chapter 5, verses 12, up to uh, the end of chapter 5, bringing us into chapter 6. What has he been telling us about? The difference, the fundamental difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. And perhaps you're beginning to see how it all fits together. Yes, and if we are in Christ and no longer in Adam, certain things will follow. And thus the chapter becomes, or, or the teaching of the chapter becomes, union with Christ, as it was set forth in chapter 5, verses 12 through 21, union with Christ in its practical effects, in its practical outworking. Chapter 6. What does the life of the man, and what does the heart of the man, look like who is out of Adam and into Christ? But more narrowly, if more broadly the teaching of the chapter is uh, union with Christ, uh, by the way, uh, verse 14, I think, is the, the clearest thesis statement of the, of the chapter. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under law, but under grace. That is, you who are brought out of Adam and put into Christ. You are now under grace. More narrowly, the idea of the chapter and the leading thought is our death to sin. Our death to sin. And if you read John Murray and Principles of conduct, the dynamic of the Christian life. That's the thought he really emphasizes. That if you are in Christ and no longer in Adam, you are dead to sin. And if we have died to sin, Paul says this now being the thought of verse 2. By virtue of our union with Christ in his death to sin at the cross. How can we still live in it? Beloved, do you feel the force of that argument? I don't know how much more I want to say because, well, that's going, unfolding that one idea is going to be the emphasis of the next sermon. But do you understand and do you feel the force of the argument? If you've died to this force and this power that once enslaved you, how is it possible that you could ever again walk in the ways of sin? As though your life was still under the dominion of Satan. As though your conscience were still answerable to him. Do you not realize what Christ has done for you? Do you not realize what it means to be in Christ and now under his dominion? Do you realize that as sin is a reign and a power in man's life. Who is an Adam. Equally. And this was the, 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 the final thought of chapter, chapter 5. Grace is an even greater power and reign in a man's life. It is a dominating principle. It is the greatest thing in your life. And how could you ever walk out of the ways of sin and now take up this new path by God's almighty grace and ever think 
that the, other, that the old ways still belong to you. Here indeed is the thought upon which our sanctification, which is to say our daily victory over sin depends. And to that end, I would say yes, sanctification is the theme of chapter 6, though I would, I would not want to say that Paul is finished with justification here. No, he's still talking about justification and he's talking to the man who is justified and he says, I want you to understand this. To be justified is to be brought into the realm of grace. It is to be brought under its power, under its reign. And that is going to have explosive effects to your living. The Apostle Paul. How can you go on now with that with which you have died? That with which you have finished? Are you not interested? He says to the man who has been justified. Are you not interested now? And rather with living this new life in Christ. Can you honestly claim. That sin still has the same power over you. Than it once did. Or as it once did. Well. There's much to be said there. And I look forward to saying it all. But as I close. I would simply notice that this is how the Christian reasons. The sinner who is saved by grace. He doesn't take what Paul says in chapter 5 and especially the end of chapter 5 that as much as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He doesn't conclude from that, well then, let us sin that grace may abound. That is, let me say again, how the devil reasons. That's the devil's logic and that is how every sinner reasons when he gets a hold of this gospel. In other words, the man who has really taken the gospel of free grace to heart does not become an antinomian. At least he shouldn't. Of course, we know that many sincere Christians sadly go down this path. I'm certain that each of you can think of times in your life when you have. All of us are aware of the danger and the tendency of our hearts to go in this direction. But we realize that when we do, or at least we ought to realize, when we do go down the path and become little antinomians once again, And patting ourselves on the back because at least we're not legalists. That what we have distorted most is not the law of God, but the grace of God. And the grace of God as it appears in Christ his son. For grace does not invite us to further sin, but is itself a reign and a power in our lives, just as sin once was. It is a power and a reign and an influence that places us in a new position altogether. We are no longer in the realm and the ways of sin and death as we once were in Adam. But we are now in the realm of life, life to God. We are alive to God, just as Christ Jesus was in his resurrection. And if we are alive to God, then that life will not look like it once did. It will not be a life that is full of sin, certainly not sin in its enslaving power and tendency, but it will be a life rather which is full of good works and charity and love. Our bodies, Paul says, will no longer be instruments of sin as slaves to its power, but rather they will become instruments of righteousness now that grace has begun to reign in our lives. And there is no teaching, beloved, there is no teaching which has greater relevance and greater importance to our desire to live out the Christian life than this thought and try to get a hold of it, that I who am in Christ I am now dead to sin and alive to God. Amen. Let us come now to the table.
Matthew 26, the words of institution that we find there, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broken, and gave it to his disciples, or the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know, uh, when I was uh, at General Assembly, I'm probably going to be saying that an awful lot in the coming weeks, so just get used to that. Back at GA... When we had the Lord's Supper, we did a joint service, all the ministers together in the evening on the Lord's Day. And the man who instituted the Lord's Supper didn't read that last verse. And I was like, you need to read that last verse. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Don't forget that uh, this belongs in the context of worship. It's not just sitting down at the table. But this is communion with Christ. This is in his presence. It's praying to him. It's singing. It belongs here in the, in the gathering of the saints. Now, another thing that... Uh, you remember as we read other accounts is the fact that a, a betrayer was at hand. And I've often said that it is the table that clarifies the apostate. Uh, and it is in that sense, I think, that we ought to examine ourselves, not with trembling and fear, as though perhaps maybe I am apostate, but at least with self-examination as to whether I have faith in Jesus Christ, especially as he's set forth at the table. What is it that he's offering to us? He's offering to us communion with him. This is my body. This is my blood. He wants us by faith to commune with him. He wants us to experience his grace, grace afresh, which is why we call it a means of grace. This is a means by which we are strengthened in grace. And what does being strengthened in grace mean? Well, if you listen to the sermon, it means putting away the ways of sin. It means living a life which is pleasing to God. Now, if that's something that you want and if that's something that you believe that Christ is able to give you, then I say that the, the table is for you. But to others, I would say as a word of warning that perhaps you don't want that and perhaps your heart is still in the antinomian frame so strongly that, uh, well, you don't view the supper that way nor the gospel itself. If your desire is for grace rightly understood... If it is for grace as a power and a reign that frees you from sin in its condemnation, in its guilt, but also in its power. Those are the two main tendencies of sin. It condemns us, but it also enslaves us. And grace frees us from both. Grace justifies us, but it also enables us to live a holy life. Beloved, if that is your desire, then I say that the table is for you. But if you find in your heart still distorted views of grace, then I wonder whether it is time to come to the table. I don't imagine there are many, if any, uh, but with those words of invitation, but also fencing, having been said, uh, let us come to the table. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of grace, preeminently grace that is on display here. We don't look upon the body of Jesus on the cross, but we enjoy the grace that was purchased there and freely bestowed upon the church as a result of that death. And so we praise you, Lord Jesus, that you gave yourself for us and for our sins, that in you we experience a full and a free pardon of sin and new life. Not only uh, in the new covenant do you forget our sins, but you write our, your law on our hearts, the two great blessings. God, we look for both here. We look for uh, a, ref a refreshing sense of forgiveness, forgiveness, pardon our sins, forgive us our debts. 
But we also ask you for power to live out the Christian life, the dynamic, the power, the reign of grace to be extended and furthered in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.